Today's message in a sentence would sound like this. In the soul-saving, faith-sustaining, and future-raising of all God's elect, the Lord Jesus mightily and exhaustively accomplishes the will of God the Father. So three things. He saves us, He sustains us, and He will one day raise us. All of those, today's passage, show us Jesus will mightily and perfectly accomplish because that is the will of His Father. So put another way, John 6, 35-40 says it this way, Jesus will lose none whom the Father has given to Him. So before we read the passage, I want to try to say that again and drag the plow just a little deeper. According to Jesus, who's the one speaking in today's passage, two things happen. The Father ensures that all those He has given to His Son will come to Him. That's the Father's job. And in turn, Jesus ensures that He will save and forever satisfy with the unending supply of His sufficiency, we like to say at Grace Church, His enoughness, He will save and satisfy with His enoughness all who come to Him until at glorious last, He raises on the last day all who have done something. And Jesus says this is what those have done and do who He will save, satisfy, and raise. They behold Him and believe on Him. So the Father gives and the Son saves, but those whom the Father gives and those who the Son son saves behold Christ and believe on Him. That's what the passage says. Well, before we read the passage, let me just tell you the whole book of John in four parts. There's an introduction in chapter 1. From chapter 1 to 12, there's the book of signs. That's where we're at. Jesus' signs, Jesus' miracles. Chapters 13 to 20, there's the book of glory. It's Jesus' last week. It's his suffering, his death, and then there's a conclusion. So we're in that second part, the book of signs. And in chapter 6, right before the passage we're going to read, Jesus has fed the 5,000, walked on the water, and now he's speaking to the crowds. They chased him all the way around the Sea of Galilee, and they're there before his boat even shows up. And he says, I know why you came. Like, they don't even ask him a question. He starts. He, I know why you're here. And he explains their motive. You ate bread, and you want more. And he tells them their motives are off. They don't want him. They just want his, like, magic trick, almost. So, in our section, he's concluding his words to those people. Verses 26 to 40. We're going to look at 35 to 40. Then he's going to talk to the Jews verse 41 to 40, uh, 58. Then he's going to talk to the disciples, verses 59 to 65. And then Peter's going to make a great confession of faith at the end of the chapter. So words to the people, words to the Jews, words to the disciples, right at the end of that section, words to the people. Look at verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. And he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me 
and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Verse 40, for this is the will of my father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. Well, hopefully you saw the themes that I just touched in the intro, but before we dig in, let's pray together again for help. Father, I just pray as simply as I know how to put it based on this passage, that You will give us all to Christ. And that Jesus will keep us to the end. And that the proof that we're those people will be that we do what Jesus says, like in verse 45, we will come to Him. We will believe in Him. Or verse 40, we will behold Him and keep believing in Him. So you do your work that only you can do and cause us to do what you require in trusting Christ. And we pray this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, these are six verses, 35 to 40, and we're going to take them in four parts. Number one, the all-satisfying enoughness of the Lord Jesus. That sounds like very, you know, preachy talk, but think about that. Jesus satisfies because he's enough. The deep need of our soul, Jesus alone can meet. Verse 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will not thirst. So that's where I get the all-satisfying enoughness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And many of you are familiar with the fact that there are seven I am statements in John's Gospel. You may be able to think of some of those where Jesus says, I am, and then he gives a, a uh, category. This is the first one of those seven in the Gospel of John. Here, it's I'm the bread of life. In chapter 8, it's I'm the light of the world. Chapter 10, I'm the door of the sheep. Chapter 10, again, I am the good shepherd. Chapter 11, when he raises Lazarus, I am the resurrection and the life. Chapter 14, I am, you guys know this one, 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then finally, chapter 15, I am the true vine. So this is the first of the seven I am's. And it's emphasizing the enoughness of Jesus, that he satisfies that he is all satisfying. Bread gives us that that picture. So in those seven assertions, Jesus isn't just saying um, words that illustrate things that are easier for us to think about, like bread or food. He's actually tying every one of them to the Old Testament. And in this one, Jesus is equating himself with the God of the Old Testament. 
So when Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, everybody who heard him that knew their Bible understood that he wasn't just saying, oh yeah, I fed 5,000 people earlier in this chapter. He's saying, I'm the God that you read about in the first 39 books of the Bible. Because in Exodus 3, God said to Moses, introducing himself, he is the I am. And that's what everybody who heard Jesus would have understood him to be saying. And he ties it with that metaphor, bread of life, to drive home the point that he alone satisfies. You know what it's like to be super hungry. And when you finally get that meal, it touches a little part of you that feels really good. (laughs) That's called satisfaction. And food does that temporarily. Jesus does that for time and eternity. In your soul, you have a... God just made us with a craving. He made us with a, with a uh, wanter. We want. We desire. Well, the deepest want, the deepest craving is, is for God. So in our initial embrace of Jesus by faith, our deep need to know God is satisfied, fulfilled. That's what he means when he says, I'm the bread of life. Although, when we do feed on Jesus, it's unlike physical food in a lot of ways. Unlike physical bread, because he does touch our deep need and totally satisfies us, but he also woos us to feast on him more and continue to fill us. But notice he uses the two analogies, bread and water, in this verse. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. So he curbs your hunger by satisfying you, and he quenches your thirst by filling you. That's the basic need of human life. Food, water. Like you don't need anything more than you need those two things. And that's what Jesus is saying. I am the fulfillment of your greatest need. If you don't have me, you're never going to be full. You'll always be hungry. You'll always be thirsty. I alone meet that need. The Bible has those two connections, food and water, tied to Jesus over and over again. Let me give you one example of water from Revelation 7. Jesus says in Revelation 7, 16, they will hunger no longer, there's food, nor thirst anymore. That's what's going to happen in the end. Nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat, for the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So you see, no more hunger, no more thirst, totally satisfied. Why? Because the lamb in the center of the throne is going to be their shepherd. Well, I want you to notice in verse 35, before we leave this point one, the uh, all-satisfying enoughness of Jesus. Look, Look in verse 35 at the action that is taken by those who experience Jesus as the bread of life. There's two things Jesus says those people do. He doesn't say they eat him and drink him. That would be the parallel to bread and thirst. Instead, he says, 
they come to him and they believe in him. This is massively helpful for what Jesus is going to say in the rest of this passage beyond where we're looking today. Later, Jesus is going to say in in verses 53 to 56, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life. Verse 54, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Verse 55, My flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. I mean, it sounds like cannibalism almost, doesn't it? Like eating his flesh, drinking his blood. But verse 35 tells us what he means. Bread and water are not to be eaten and drank. You are to come to him, verse 35, and believe in him. That's what he means in verses 53 to 56 about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. It's come to Jesus, believe in Jesus. And we get that straight from verse 35. One, one commentator, Gerald Boucher, said, The logic expressed in verse 35 indicates that coming to Jesus is equal to believing in him. And obeying Jesus is parallel to believing in him from chapter 3. So I'm going to ask you before we leave, number one, have you feasted on the all-sufficient, all-satisfying, soul-nourishing, eternal life-giving meal of Jesus? Have you done that? Have you, let's think about food, when you're super hungry, have you gorged yourself on Jesus? I just tried to kind of nibble here and there on him. Have you glutted your faith on the Son of God? Have you filled up your soul with Christ? Or to use the drink analogy, have you drank your fill from the fountain of Christ? You know what it's like when you're just super thirsty, parched, you've been running, exercising, playing, whatever, and you just guzzle water. Have you guzzled the grace of Christ? What's the evidence that you have feasted on Jesus. According to verse 35, it's that you're still doing it. You're still coming to Him. You're still believing on Him. You didn't do it five years ago and finish. Like a physical meal, the evidence that you have hunger is that you keep eating. The evidence that you have thirst is that you keep drinking. So He quenches and He expands your capacity for more So is he your portion that has already satisfied your deepest need, which is not physical food or water, but reconciliation with God forever? I love how one commentator put it. It's only like a few little words, but listen to this. J.H. Bernard said in, in his commentary on verse 35, the desire of the soul is satisfied by Jesus. It's just short and simple. But so so many people miss that simple, most important truth. All right. So Jesus says in verse 35, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. So Jesus has put together now the feeding of the 5,000 and said, I'm the bread. 
he put together what happened in chapter 4 with the woman at the well where he said, I'm living water. The water that I give you, you'll never thirst again. One, one commentary said, unlike manna, which has a temporary effect, Jesus gives eternal satisfaction. Jesus is the ultimate sustenance for humanity. He is the feast upon which people must eat. There's an old hymn writer. You, know, you guys know I like the old dead guys, but John Chinnick's old hymn. Listen to what he says about Jesus being the satisfying bread. Come, O my soul, and sing how Jesus hath thee fed, how Jesus gave himself to thee the true and living bread. So what Jesus is doing in verse 35 is capturing all the Old Testament with the I am. He's saying, I'm the God of the Old Testament, but he's also saying there's there's enough for you. Just come and eat, come and drink, and I'll give you your fill. Reminds me of Isaiah 55, 1. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Isn't that awesome? No money, come get all you want. You don't, you don't pay for your salvation. He provides it graciously. All right, that's number one. Number two, verse 36. Because verse 35 is true, it makes the guilt of those who don't come to him worse. Do you see that in verse 36? Here's the point. Because Jesus is the bread of life, and because he quenches our eternal thirst, that truth compounds the eternal guilt of spiritual blindness among those who don't believe. So not believing is is worse because of how great Jesus is. Do you see that in verse 36? But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. Well, who's Jesus talking to? I, I told you guys at the beginning that he's in Galilee He just rode a boat across the sea. The passage tells us that earlier. And the people ran around and they beat him there. And they're there waiting on him. So it's a bunch of people from Galilee. And I told you in just a moment, he's going to talk to the Jews. And after he talks to the Jews, he's going to talk to the disciples. And at the end of chapter 6, Peter's going to make a great confession. So who's he talking to when he says, You have seen me, and yet you do not believe? He's talking to the Galileans. Guess what little city was in Galilee? Southern part of Galilee, but Nazareth. That's where Jesus grew up. He's talking to his people. So in chapter 1 to 5, the Jews don't believe. And now in chapter 6, the Galileans don't believe. You have seen me and you do not believe. Do you guys know that not believing, I'm trying to drive home this point from verse 35. Guilt is worse because of how great Jesus is. Guilt is worse for those who don't believe. His greatness defines how guilty we are. His sufficiency, his supply. Anything that you do without faith is sin. Did you guys know that? So faith is not just like a little part of your life. 
that you do on Sunday or when you need to pray. Romans 4.23, whatever does not come from faith is sin. Jesus says, you've seen me and you don't believe. Romans 4.23 again, whatever is not from faith is sin. Man, that's a staggering verse, isn't it? What about Hebrews 11.6? Without faith, it is impossible to please God. These people always live in sin because they don't believe. And they never please God because they don't believe. It's not that lost people do some bad things and some good things and God is not pleased with the bad and He's kind of moderately happy with the good. He's not pleased with anything that an unbeliever ever does. That's why it's important that we live a life of faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. You can't please Him if you don't trust Him. The verb have seen, I said that you have seen me, verse 36, it is in a perfect, it's a perfect verb. That means it's a past action with ongoing results. Well, what have they seen? I mean, the bread is literally still in their belly from when he fed them. 5,000 people, it says 5,000 men, probably like 25,000 people. They still have the meal inside them. They've seen, this guy is God, but they don't believe. That's how blind they are. And he tells them why. It's the opposite of seeing. You've seen me, but you can't see me. You're You're not really seeing who I am. So, because of how great Jesus is, the all-satisfying enoughness of Jesus, the bread of life, the living water, verse 35, that makes the spiritual guilt of those who don't believe even worse. All right, so that's one and two. So number two, having seen why not believing in the Son means eternal guilt for all who don't believe, The Lord Jesus turns in verse 37 to 40 to the will of his Father for the elect. I know it's a challenging truth, but that's what he's talking about in the remainder of the passage. The will of his Father for the elect. Two parts, verse 37, 38, and then verse 39 and 40. Verse 37 and 38, look what this is about. I'll, I'll title it this way. The pleasure of the Father was the resolute purpose of the incarnate Son. One more time. The pleasure of the Father, what the Father wanted, desired, was pleased with, was the resolute purpose of the incarnate Son. The incarnate Son means when Jesus came to earth and took on humanity. The pleasure of the Father was the resolute purpose of the incarnate Son. Now look at verse 37 and 38. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So he's saying in verse 37, hey, the reason you don't believe, verse 36, is because my Father has not given you to me. You see the connection? All right. So according to the opening line of verse 37, 
hope you guys can see it, even if your translation's a little different. All that the Father gives me will come to me. We're, we're being exposed to a reality, a truth that John talks about constantly. Let me give you some examples. Here's the truth. The Father gives people to his Son. So instead of saying, I think this is a good thing to say. Instead of saying, um, have you given your life to Christ? I think it's a wonderful thing to say. We should also say, has God the Father given your life to his Son? It's one thing to give yourself to Jesus. It's another thing for God to give you to Jesus. Do you hear the difference? Okay. The Father giving people to his Son for salvation is like saturating the Gospel of John. Let me give you a few examples. John 6, 44, just a few verses later, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. John 6, 65, same chapter, for this reason I said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. John 10, you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish for no one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one's able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. John 17 is one long prayer of Jesus, the whole chapter. Listen to the way Jesus talks about the Father giving people to him for salvation. In his prayer, he's not talking to us. He's talking to God. Listen to what he says. John 17, 1 and 2, Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Who does Jesus give eternal life to? The people that the father gave to him. John 17, 6, I manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. John 17, 9, I pray on their behalf. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. John 17, 12, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you gave me. I guarded them and not one of them perished except the son of perdition, that's Judas, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Two more, John 17, 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, will be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you gave me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Then the last one is in John 18, where Jesus says uh, to the people who came to arrest him. Now think about this. He knows he's about to be killed. What does he say? Therefore he again asked them, whom do you seek? John 18, 7. Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let all these go their way. So uh, to fulfill the word which he had spoken of those whom you have given me, Father, I did not lose one. So you see that pattern. That's what verse 37 is about. All that the Father gives me will come to me. But do you notice the three nevers? If you count verse 35 and 37, 
If you come to Jesus, you get three glorious nevers. You will never be hungry, 35. That's spiritual appetite unmet. You will never be thirsty, 35. Spiritual thirst, never unquenched. And verse 37, you will never be cast away. It's really positive. You'll never be unkept. If the Father gives you to Jesus, Jesus promises the Father he will keep you forever. Those are, those are mighty promises. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. I'm going to read you another quote from another commentary. Listen carefully to it in light of verse 37. Let me read 37 again. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. D.A. Carson said, However many people do not believe, God's saving purposes cannot be frustrated. Jesus' confidence does not rest in the potential for positive response among well-meaning people. Far from it. Jesus' confidence is in his Father to bring to pass the Father's redemptive purposes all that the Father gives to Jesus will come to him. Jesus' confidence in the success of his mission is frankly predestinarian. D.A. Carson. Here's what that means. Jesus wants everybody to know that the reason he's going to save people forever is not because we're good at trusting him, but because he's good at keeping those who trust him. Right? It's not, uh, it's been said a lot, it's not our hold of Christ which saves us, it's his hold of us which saves us and keeps us. So in verse 37, Jesus uses a negative to mean a positive. The negative is, I will not cast out. Well, that's like you and me going to a restaurant. You're, let's say it's at your favorite restaurant. I've never been there before. We're looking at the menu. And I don't know what your favorite item is. I just know you love the restaurant. You're like, oh, man, it's my favorite place. We got to go. We got to go. We're sitting there looking at the menu. And I say, hey, man, I'm thinking about ordering blah, 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 blah. And that's your very favorite thing at your very favorite restaurant. And you say to me something like this, you won't be sorry. We all know you mean I'm really, really going to like it. So you use a negative to say a positive. It's called a litotes. It's a form of communication. Jesus is doing that in verse 37. Do you see it? If the Father gives you to me, you're not going to be sorry. I'm not going to cast you out. What does he mean positively? I'm going to keep you. You don't have to worry if you're going to be saved if you trust me because when the Father gives you to me, I got you. It's not just negative, I'm not going to throw you away. It's I'm going to keep you close to God forever. That's awesome. <laughs> so Jesus is affirming he's going to keep us in by saying I'm not going to cast you out. So the accent mark again in verse 37 is not on people coming to Jesus and believing in Him. That is so vitally important. You must come to Jesus. You must. 
you must believe in Jesus. But the accent mark is not on our coming, it's on the Father's giving and the Son's keeping. We come to Jesus for a reason. Because His Father gave us to Him. We remain in Jesus for a reason. Because He determines to keep us engrafted into God's family as a testimony to His obedience to His Father's will. All right, that's verse 37. Our point again is the pleasure of the Father was the resolute purpose of the incarnate Son. The reason He came to earth was to do His Father's pleasure. All right, that's verse 37. Now look at verse 38. It begins with the word for. For I have come down from heaven. Not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Do you see that that's the ground reason for verse 37 to be true? If the Father gives you to me, you're going to come to me. And when you come to me, I'm never going to cast you away because that's why I came from heaven to earth. You see that in verse 38? For this is the reason for which I came down from heaven. So here's the meaning of verse 38. Jesus will welcome everyone who ever trusts him. If you put your faith in Jesus, he will save you. Because he knows that nobody can trust him by faith unless the Father gives them to him. And he doesn't want to do anything more than glorify his Father. And it brings his Father great joy and great glory to show how great Jesus is by giving people to Jesus so that Jesus can save them. So Jesus is saying in verse 38, the whole reason I came from heaven to earth is because the Father has given me a people to save. So if they come to me, I'm going to save them forever. That's precisely why he came. That's the way the word for works at the beginning of verse 38. So let me try to role play a conversation between the Father and the Son in eternity past to help us understand 37 and 38 before we move to our final point. All right, so it didn't happen like this, but I'm just kind of, you know, in imagining the conversation. It's as if the Father said to His Son, I have delighted to give you a bride from humanity that if they will be your bride, you must purchase them with your own virtuous blood, through your vicarious death, and in your victorious resurrection. And it's as if the Father said, my unbreakable, incontrovertible, my unbreakable will is that you not only save them, but those whom you save, you keep every single one of them without exception, losing none of them. And it's as if the Father looks at the Son and says, this plan will bring me great glory and joy. Son, do you accept this assignment? All right, so there's the Father. And then it says, if the Son says, according to verse 38, if such an undertaking to justify, sanctify, 
and glorify former rebels will honor you? Then by all means, yes, I will descend from heaven. I will go to earth. I will become incarnate in their likeness for precisely that purpose, that I may become, why did he have to become a man? Here's the main reason, that I may become killable. You can't kill God. He had to become a man to die. I will become like them to become killable on their behalf to preserve all whom you have given me to life forevermore. Now, I know this is deep. It's thick, but thankfully we have passages in the Bible that put it to us plainly like this. The, the whole title of this message is the will of the father is accomplished by the son because of verses 38 and following. So do you see in verse 38 that the solid ground of eternal hope for all who have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of sins and the fulfillment of all God's promises to us, including eternal life, does not rely on you trusting Christ? That's not the ground of our faith. But rather, our hope relies entirely on Christ fulfilling His Father's will to keep all who trust Him. Now listen to verse 38 one more time. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. What is that will? To not lose one person the Father's given Him. So Jesus undertakes to accomplish the will of the Father in laboring for our rescue. And in this undertaking, He never fails. Indeed, He cannot fail. Rather, the mighty Christ, all-powerful, omnipotent Christ from time eternal, steps into time and space as a babe who was born through the womb of the Virgin Mary. He proceeded in His life to fill up all righteousness with unflinching obedience to His Father, culminating in His sacrificial death on behalf of disobedient rebels, so that in His risen glory, God the Father can show off the excellence of His Son for all eternity in making trophies of His grace out of people like you and me who trust in Jesus to save us from the wrath to come. So, the eternal work of redemption, salvation, is predicated on God the Father giving to God the Son a people whom the Son undertakes to rescue and redeem to show off the worth and excellence of the triune God that it is His will to get glory that way through the sacrifice of Christ. All right, so the final part is verses 39 and 40. So verse 38 tells us that the incarnation happened because the Son was pleased to accomplish the will of the Father to save us. Verse 39 and 40 say, it is the pleasure of the Son to be the object of life forevermore to all whom the Father has given Him. Very wordy, but are you thinking with me? Think with me. It is the pleasure of the Son, Jesus, to be the object of life forevermore unto all whom the Father has given Him. It makes Jesus really happy to give us life forever and ever and ever if we will make Him the object of our faith forever. That's the way verse 39 and 40 work. Let me read it again. 
This is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. Not one individual will be lost whom the Father has given to the Son. It's an absolute guarantee of the gospel. The doctrine of eternal security of the believer, we we say it a lot of ways, and, and they're all okay. Some are better than others because of things you might not mean when you say them, but they're all okay. Uh, Once saved, always saved. You guys have heard that. It's true. Um, The eternal security of the believer, same thing. That's true. The perseverance of the saints, same thing. That's true. But the ground of all that is the preservation power of Christ. We persevere in the faith if we're real Christians. Because Christ preserves us forever. His preserving is the ground of our persevering. That's why we sing songs at Grace Church that we love like, He will hold me fast. That's what we mean. He's keeping us more than we're holding on to Him. So verse 39 and 40 is the first time in John's Gospel that Jesus uses the phrase, the last day. Do you see it in verse 39 and 40? The last day. He uses it a bunch more. He uses it in verse 44, 54, chapter 7, chapter 11, chapter 12. But this is the first time. And he's using it at a particular point in the gospel for the first time. What is happening... In John's gospel now is what uh, scholars call the festival cycle. Jesus is showing up at different feasts. Chapter 5. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went to Jerusalem. Chapter 6. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was near. Chapter 7. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths was near. Chapter 7, verse 37, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anybody's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Do you hear that? Festival, feast, feast, feast. In that moment, when the Jews are feasting and in their cycle of festivals and Jesus shows up, he says, I'm the bread of life. And on the last day, all the feasts were to remember God's grace and redemptive history in the Old Testament and to look forward to the great day when God would save his people forever. In the middle of all those festivals, Jesus starts talking about the last day. What he has in mind is the day of the Lord that Zechariah talked about in Zechariah 14. Or the day of the Lord that Isaiah talked about in chapter 12. Or Joel talked about in chapter 1 and chapter 2. Or Amos talked about in chapter 5. Or Zephaniah talked about in chapter 1. The Jews were really looking forward to the last day. So they thought. And Jesus is saying, He's the one, the line of demarcation, 
upon which everybody's eternity swings on the last day. So when Jesus says the last day, he's talking about that great conclusion of human history as we know it, when God's kingdom is finally ushered in and the bride of Jesus is going to be unimaginably glorified and the enemies of Christ are going to be made his footstool. The last day is really good news for God's people and really bad news for those who are not. So as we consider this passage, we should be asking a question. Something like this. How do I know that I am one whom the Father has given to the Son? Like, how can you climb up inside God's mind and figure out if you're one of those people who is going to be kept by the Son and according to verse 39 and 40, raised on the last day by the life-giving power of Christ? Verse 37 answers the question this way. Well, if the Father has given you to the Son. But that doesn't give you much concrete answer, does it? You still could be wondering, how do I know if I'm one of them? Verse 40 gives you another answer that's way less mysterious. Are you one who beholds and believes in Jesus? That's how you know if the Father has given you to Christ. I'm not making this up. It's in verse 40. Are you one who beholds and believes in Jesus? Those are the people the Father has given to His Son. Those are the people the Son will save and sanctify and raise on the last day. Jesus will keep you in the faith. He will raise you on the last day and He will prove that you are one that the Father has given to Him to give life eternal if you are one who beholds Him and believes in Him. So verse 40 is... I would say it's as succinct a picture of a true Christian as any verse I know in the Bible. And if that doesn't make you want to know verse 40, I don't know what else would. In verse 40, Christians are shown to be people who see in Jesus something they cannot turn away from. It Double negative. Real Christians can't not believe. They can't not behold. It, it, it's impossible for real Christians not to be attracted to Christ. There's an initial beholding, verse 40, and as a result of seeing him, beholding him, there's an ongoing believing, trusting. The one who is the object of our faith, Jesus, is the epicenter of our faith. Our whole life begins to orbit around Christ. Christ Jesus is, for Christians, the sum total of saving knowledge. It's not what we've done, it's who He is and and what He's done. Christianity is a beholding and believing in the Son. That's what Jesus says. And that's His Father's will. And that's the people He will raise on the last day. So we could say it this way. Christians are in Christ, by Christ, for Christ. Our faith is a gift of God. And we know we have real faith if the gift of faith terminates on the Son of God. And so terminates on the Son of God 
that we latch onto him manifesting in two things, looking at him and trusting in him, beholding and believing him alone as the ultimate hope for our satisfaction, bread of life. So behold and believe, we'll close with looking at these two words, and then I'm going to read you a, uh, a story. What does it mean to behold? What does it mean to believe? Verse 40. The word behold, this is what a Bible dictionary said, means sustained attention. It means you look at, you carefully observe, and you perceive. That's what it means to behold Christ. So I want to ask you, at whatever age, whatever stage of faith you're at, are you beholding Christ? Are you giving him, to use that definition, sustained attention? Are you looking at him, observing him, perceiving him? Second Corinthians says if we do that, Second Corinthians 3, he changes us into his image. Jesus says the same thing in other places in John. John 12, he says, it says, Jesus cried out and he said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. That's why Jesus wants you to behold him. He's the only way to see God. Or John 14, 19. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. Beholding the Son, sustained attention, looking at Him, observing Him, perceiving Him. All right, believing in the Son. That means you consider Him to be true and therefore worthy of your entire trust. That's what believing is. It is a giving of all that you know of yourself to all that you know of Him. And the more you know of Him, the more you trust Him. That's evidence of faith. You give all you know of yourself right now to all you know to be true of him right now. And you continue to do that the more you grow and know. That's what John 3.16 means. Whosoever believes in him will not perish. That's present, active, continual trusting. And that's the whole reason the Gospel of John was written. So that's our application before I read you this story. John 20 tells us why every verse in the Gospel of John was written. So that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, you would have life in his name. That's the goal of this passage and every other passage in John. All right, here's a story. It comes from Charles Spurgeon, and we'll close uh, with this and uh, a, a hymn that uh, I'll quote two lines, two verses of. Charles Spurgeon said, Those who have once eaten and drunk Christ never seek additional ground of trust beyond Christ. A true Christian never says, I'm resting upon Christ, but I should still like to be able to depend just a little on my baptism. I've never heard a Christian talk in that sort of fashion in my life. I've never heard a man say, I rest in the blood of Jesus, but I still wish I could have the bishop's hands, the pastor's hands put on my head so as to give me confirmation of my faith. I never heard that in my life. I do not expect that I ever shall. We are perfectly 
satisfied without priests, without sacraments. Jesus Christ is the one sole foundation upon which we build. Again, I've never found those who rest in Christ wanting to shift their confidence. Those who want something new every Sunday are those who do not know the Savior. Truly, if you have not the bread from heaven, you may well cry out for all manner of dishes, for each one will soon cloy. It'll be empty. But if you have the bread of heaven, you want Christ on the 1st of January and every day till the last of December. I have never heard a Christian assert that Christ did not satisfy them in the days of sickness and in the hour of death. I came to you this morning, this is a sermon on a Sunday, I came to you this morning fresh from the sickbed of a venerable Christian man, close upon his 80th year of age, and I said to him, Now, dear sir, here are three or four young people around your bed. We are going forth on our pilgrimage, relying on Christ, believing that he is faithful and true. You have gone a great deal further than we have. So you get it? He's a young pastor with two or three friends at a hospital beside the bed of a man who's dying in his 80s. All right? And this is what he says. Uh, We're on our pilgrimage, relying on Christ, believing that he's faithful and true. You've gone a great deal further than we have. Will you therefore kindly undeceive us if you are under a mistake? Have you found that the Lord has not fulfilled his word? Have you found that he has not been true? It was a blessed sight to see the man of God and to hear him say, quote, Not one good thing hath failed of all that the Lord God has promised. And then he added, I will sing of mercy, for it has been mercy, all mercy, all the way through. Do you feel uh, any fear about your departure? I said to him. Oh, dear, no, he said. I'm willing to wait or willing to go, but I am full of the expectation of beholding him who loved me and gave himself for me. Ah, the bridge of grace will you will bear your weight, brother. Thousands of big sinners have gone across that bridge. Yea, tens of thousands have gone over it. I can hear their trampings now as they traverse the great arches of the bridge of salvation. They come by their thousands, by their myriads. Ere since the day when Christ first entered into glory, they come, and yet never a stone has sprung in that mighty bridge. Some have been the chief of sinners. And some have come at the very last days, last of their days, but the arch has never yielded beneath their weight. I will go with them, trusting the same support. It will bear me over as, as it has borne them. They who have eaten Christ and drunk Christ shall never hunger or thirst in their last hour, trying as that hour may be. God grant us grace to live upon Christ evermore. Amen. This is what John 6, 35 to 40 is all about. There's an old hymn. I'll close with quoting it before we pray. God of the covenant, triune Jehovah, marvels of mercy adoring we see, seeker of souls and the counsels eternal, binding thy lost ones forever to thee, not now by words bringing death to transgressors, grace unto life, The new covenant brings Jesus, our surety, our kinsman, redeemer, around us the robe of his righteousness flings. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the very profound truth that is found even in this passage, John 6, 35 to 40. And thank you for 
saying to us very clearly that the ground of our hope is that the Father has given to the Son people to save, and the Son has delighted to do the will of the Father to save, to sanctify, and to keep us forever, even to the last day when He will raise us up, and that nothing can cause this purpose to fail. We ask for grace, not to be fatalistic, oh, God's in control, nothing can change, He elects, He predestines, so we should not try. No, Lord, we ask that you would prove us to be ones that you have given to your Son by causing us to come to Him, to believe in Him, by causing us to behold Him, and to trust Him. Make Make us trophies of the grace of Jesus so that you get all the glory in our salvation. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.